Hello, beautiful souls. Welcome back to the Angels and Awakening podcast. I'm your host and author, Julie Jancis. And friends, today, I want to start off with a little angel message before we hop into the interview of the day, which really touched my heart with Mitch Album. And it doesn't coincide with it, but it's definitely a message that's been coming through from the angels this week. So in the angel membership, we're just talking this morning about how it feels to some people in life right now that spirit has kind of taken this sludge and handed it to you. And they're asking you to sift through it. Remember, you know, learning about people who went out to San Francisco to mine for gold, right? And they take all of this just gunk, put it on the sifter, sift through it until you find those couple of gold nuggets, right? And a lot of people are feeling this energy right now. Like spirit has has just dumped a whole load of energy onto them and they're sifting through to find those golden nuggets within their lives. Okay, so take the sludge piece, hold it off to the side. I tend to always go back and when I have a moment where I'm like, I just need to hear something in the background, I turn on this TV show on Max, which is called 100 Foot Wave. And even though it's about surfers, it is the most spiritual show in so many different ways. And every single time I turn it on, I get something new. And I heard this surfer today say on there that this humongous wave in Nazare was just so big, he didn't want to surf it for the longest time. And over the years, as the years went by, he really changed his mentality to be that of, no, this big, big, huge wave is a challenge. And I really am looking for that challenge within my life. So he said he really started to switch the voice within his head to say, I accept this challenge. I embrace this challenge. And I feel like that's what spirit is calling you to right now as they're asking you to sift through a lot of this energies and things within your life to see the golden nuggets. Why? Because this is the year of abundance. And for you to step into that abundance, and that does not mean financial, folks. Let's reframe that. It does not mean financial. It's abundance in health. It's abundance in relationships. It's abundance in love energy. It's abundance in balance and harmony and flow and just this beautiful divine rhythm within your life. And it can also be an abundance of wealth. Everything that spirit wants to bring through to you cannot come when you're focused on everything. And it cannot come when you're looking at the huge waves within your life saying, I don't want to ride that big wave. It's too big. So spirit needs you to reframe. And I want you to do that today. Reframe to this. I accept the challenge. I embrace the challenge. I want to ride the big wave of that challenge because I know where it's taking me. 
I know the abundance that's coming in because my angels are taking me to this next level. They're having me sift out all the stuff that doesn't apply to me, all the stuff that isn't for me in my life so that I'm really narrowing it down to the golden nuggets that's underneath it all. Friends, this is your message from the angels. They love you so incredibly much. Now, here is a completely different topic of the day. I guess it ties in a little bit. You'll see that by the end, uh, how we lie to ourselves all the time. Here is my interview with Mitch Album. And don't forget, the Angel membership is only open until February 1st. We're shutting it down February 1st. So if you want to get into the Angel membership, you want to have this be the year that you transform your life, and you want me as your weekly spiritual coach, I've got everything lined out for you to help create this transformation. Join us over at theangelmedium.com. Look for the angel membership tab. Here, friends, is the interview. Hello, beautiful souls. Welcome back to the Angels and Awakening podcast. I'm your host and author, Julie Jancis. Friends, today we're here with Mitch Album, who just wrote his newest book, The Little Liar. You might recognize his name from previous titles that he's written, Tuesdays with Maury, The Five People You Meet in Heaven. Mitch, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Yes. I'm not sure that you consider yourself a spiritual philosopher or spiritual teacher. And I know that your books are more uh, works of fiction, except Tuesdays with Maury. But you write in this way where you bring spiritual concepts through stories in such a way I I don't know if there's anybody else like it. You just touch the hearts of so many people. And in this newest book, The Little Liar, what you really get home to people. And I think you're, you're starting a revolution of just people thinking about the ways in which they lie to themselves. What kind of gave you the idea to write The Little Liar? Well, I always wanted to write a book, Julie, about truth and lying. And, you know, I was looking for a setting that get into the story as well as the idea of it. And so I found the story inspired by true events about a little boy during the World War II who has never told a lie in his life. He's 11 years old and uh, he's just known in his village as being the honest kid who never lies. And when the Nazis invade, They find out about him and they decide to use him as a weapon. And so they pull him away from his family and they say, you can go back to your family in just a couple of weeks. You just have to do us a favor. You have to stand on these train tracks every day and the passengers are going to be confused. So you tell them they're going to good jobs and good homes and everything's going to be good and they're going to be happy. And then you can go back to your family. So having never lied before and really being an honest kid, he thinks he's doing a nice thing. So he does this for several weeks until the last day on the last train he sees his family and this little girl that he's kind of in love with being shoved inside these box cars of the trains and he finds out that the trains are actually going to the concentration camps to auschwitz and he's not allowed to go on them with them and the book follows from that day forward for the next 40 years the ramifications of that one lie the first lie that he ever told and the worst lie that he would ever tell on him on the little girl on his brother who got sent to the concentration camps and on the nazi who tricked him into lying all revolving around you know what does one lie one single lie 
the ramifications on so many lives. And I wanted people to read it, not only to be inspired by the story and enjoy the story and all that, but also to ask themselves, what's the worst lie that you have ever told? And what were the ramifications of that lie? Who suffered? What was lost? What relationships might have been changed? And lastly, what would you do to be forgiven that lie? You know, if the person that you lied to would say to you, I forgive you, how much of yourself would you give to that? And so um, that's what The Little Liar basically centers about. And the nice sort of conceit of it, which I think has made the book kind of the, from the people who have read it, at least seem to say it made it special, is that it's told by the voice of truth. So the narrator is truth. And truth says, you know, I've been around forever. I'm the thing that, you know, you, you can't escape. I'm the mirror that holds your final reflection. I'm the only thing you can trust. And I'm telling you this story. And periodically throughout the story, truth gets to say, look at what you're doing to me, human beings. You know, why do you do this? I'm a precious virtue and you destroy me at all these opportunities. Don't you feel guilty about it? You know, why do you choose your truth here and choose a truth there and ignore the rest of me here and there? So it was interesting to write as a as a virtue. And I think it made the book kind of special. It did. There's this moment when the family's on the train and the little boy has realized that he's told this lie because he didn't think that he was lying. The The Germans told him that he was telling the truth and and he really thought that he was being helpful and, and kind of helping and saving his family. But there's this moment on the train where his brother develops this just hatred and anger towards the little liar. And you go as a reader, no, you don't understand. You don't know what what really happened. But both brothers carry this lie with them their entire lives. And it shapes every aspect of their entire lives. And I don't want to compare my story to the very, very powerful story in here, but just talking about the lies that we tell ourselves, I started to contemplate my own history and how the lies my parents told within their marriage really led to a completely different life for myself. My dad just not being honest about how he was kind of done with a marriage and going on because he wasn't able to admit it and cheating with the neighbor and leaving the family. And it, it cascaded from there into a series of different events. But when you really looked at this, I think what's so powerful in it is that we all tell fibs, little lies, we all have secret parts of ourselves that haven't been revealed to us or we don't allow ourselves to see. Do you think that these little lies affect every person's life? I think it's impossible to imagine a life without some lies in it. Uh, you know, do these pants make me look fat is a perfect, a perfect time to perhaps tell a small lie. But I think most of us know the difference between a small white lie, harmless lie, and one that does damage. And lies do damage to both the person who is lied to and to the person who tells the lie, because you have that guilt. And you, you so one lie tends to beget another lie. You know, you, you tell one lie and then you have to tell another one to cover that lie up. And uh, well, if you were there on that day, then how come you weren't there? Oh, that's because I was doing something else. And, and so, 
you have to be very careful about saying, oh, it's just a little lie. It's not a big lie because little lies turn into big lies very quickly. Yeah, 100 percent. There's a line that you wrote in the book that says, when you die, the first thing that God does is reverse the lie, the lie you told and the lies that were told about you. And that last part of that just really hit home to the lies that were told about you, because there's so many ways in which the brother character resonated with me of how other people, you know, you're just living your life and you're doing the best you can to figure out who you are at every stage of your own life. But other people are constantly judging and shaming and trying to kind of categorically put you in this box. Um, I love that line because I believe it to be truth. Yeah. Well, when you live in a world where lying is common, you can have lies told about you that can become the truth. And I quote a line in this book that was actually originally credited to a, a terrible Nazi. And sadly, it is very true. He said, a lie told once is easily seen as a lie, but a lie told a thousand times becomes the truth. And when you think about that in today's world with social media and with the ability to, to put out something that's false and have, what's the old expression, you know, a lie travels around the world before the truth gets to put its pants on in the morning. That's another expression. And it's true now more than ever because of digital and social media and the internet that something false could be said about you. And you don't even have a chance to try to defend yourself before you've got a million people thinking that it's true. So now is the time to be more careful than ever before about lies we tell about other people or even the exaggerations that we tell. And yet instead, we've become less careful. We've become more flippant with the truth everybody sort of invents their own truth. We live in, we even people have that expression now, which I hear all the time, well, I'm speaking my truth. Well, okay, what you're really saying is I'm speaking my story because there isn't, you don't get a truth and I get a truth and somebody else gets a truth. There's one truth. And, you know, the narrator of, of the book would take quite offense if, uh, you know, being the real truth, if everybody got to have their own truth and it didn't have to intersect with anybody else's. So we need to be very careful about inventing truths and about lying about other people. You don't know this about me, but I have a journalistic, subtle journalistic background, but it was my upbringing. And when you go through journalistic training, you're taught how to incorporate multiple angles and really get multiple sources into the information. Where do you see, how can people find that truth when it isn't, I don't want to say readily available, but for the last 20 years, the news industry has been blurring lines with the entertainment industry. Well, uh, it's a really good question. And uh, I think the only real way to do it is to consider multiple sources. Unfortunately, you can't just say, I'm only going to watch one cable news outlet and that's going to be my world view because you have to understand that the way the world is now, at least in America, each of those outlets kind of has a take on the world and they sort of service their news accordingly. And, you know, having worked many years before writing all these books in the newspaper business, I always watched how, like, what got put on the front page was treated differently than what got put on page 17. Now, in truth, using that expression, what got put on page 17 was just as true. And for the people involved in the that story, just as important. 
as what got put on the front page. But by virtue of putting something on the front page, by virtue of using a headline of a certain size, they are basically sending a message. This is important. And by sending a message to the people who read it, wow, this is so important. It's on the front page. I should be talking about it. I should be worried about it. Take the same story and put it on page 36, and you don't have the same reaction. So right then and there, without even changing a word, just where you place the story affects people's view of it. And it's not really the truth. It's your take on what's important and what isn't. Well, now multiply that by a million when it comes to Fox News or an MSNBC or a CNN, which all have their own particular, I'm not picking sides, I'm just saying they have their own sort of approach to the news. So I feel, and what, what I do is I just read and, and watch multiple sources at the same time. And if I see sort of the same thing on all of them that is kind of being portrayed the same way, I feel a little more confident that that must be probably what happened. If I see something that's like taken totally different on one side and totally different on the other, whether it be a newspaper or a TV channel, I say to myself, okay, it's somewhere in between. The truth is probably somewhere in between. And I better allow for the fact that it's probably not as bad as they're saying over here and probably not as good as they're saying over here. And just almost sort of read in between the lines because uh, that's the only way to really be safe. When I was reading your book, I got this vision within my mind of, you know, we felt so polarized and there's still this just huge polarization pulling us in in two different directions. And I saw you really through the book bringing people together on two different sides of one just being love and wanting that truth, wanting that love, wanting that kindness, compassion, and wanting to bring that into the world. And then there, this other piece of just those who, who truly just want to spread hatred and want that divide and just want that anger because they feel so much of that themselves. And so I want to just thank you for your work because I think that what you're truly doing is just bringing people from all different sides and all different backgrounds to a place of love and compassion. Well, that first of all, thank you, uh, Julie. That's very nice of you to say, and I appreciate that. And I don't take credit for that as, you know, I have some talent or something that's unique. I, I, I really credit my old professor, Maury Schwartz, who I wrote about in Tuesdays with Maury, for sort of laying the groundwork for me, what, what would turn out to be the rest of my career. I didn't know it at the time. You know, when I wrote Tuesdays with Maury, I was just trying to pay Maury's medical bills. I was a sports writer and I was on ESPN and my whole life consisted of games and, you know, who was going to win this and what quarterback is going to be traded and, you know, uh, what baseball game is going to be played. So I really wasn't talking about these kind of matters at all. And I started visiting my old professor who was dying from Lou Gehrig's disease and he kind of realigned my priorities. And every week we were able to talk about something that was really important in life once you know you're going to die, which of course at age 37, which is when I was visiting him, you're never thinking about, you know, you, you think you're gonna live forever. And so all of a sudden he was saying, no, you're not gonna live forever. And what you think is important right now is not going to be important when you get to the end of your life. So you may wanna rethink how you're spending your time right now. And we talked about family and, and, and money and career and, and uh, religion. And I mean, every, every week we talked about something seen through the eyes of someone who knew he was dying and wanted to share the perspective that dying gave him. And one of the things, Julie, that stayed with me so much is, is how we're more alike than different. 
and he would say this all the time. I remember he was watching, we had a little TV, black and white TV set was all he had in the house. And it happened to be on this one time we were there on a Tuesday and it was a scene from a war that was going on at the time. I think it was in Bosnia and he started crying. And I said, why are you, why are you crying? And he said, this is so terrible. This is so awful. And I said, well, I know, but I mean, do you, have you ever been to Bosnia? No. Do you know anybody in Bosnia? No. So why are you just crying like that? He said, well, Mitch, w- once you know you're going to die, you have so much more empathy for anybody suffering in the world. Feel it as if it's your own because you know what it feels like to, to suffer and to re- for recognize your mortality. And that's when he said, we're more alike than different. You know, we, we like to separate ourselves by I'm black, I'm, you're white, I'm rich, you're poor, I'm American, you're this, I'm male, you're female. But the fact is, we shouldn't be emphasizing our differences. We should be emphasizing what pulls us together. And I've tried to write all of my books since Tuesdays with Maury with that philosophy in mind. That is there a lesson that I can bring to this book that pulls us together because we're more alike than different? And that was true for the five people you meet in heaven. It was true for for one more day it was true for stranger in the lifeboat it was true for all the books in between and it's true for the little liar that even under these worst case scenarios worst case scenarios uh where there's a moment in the book where they're in the concentration camps and you think this is the most hopeless possible desolate scene suffering and starvation and everything and at the end of the day the grandfather and the family pulls all of the family members together, keeping their voice down so that they won't be heard by the guards. And he makes them go around and say, what was the one good thing that happened today? And you would think, how could there be a good thing in a concentration camp? Well, one of them says, I, I had one spoonful of soup more today than I had yesterday. And one says that my rotted tooth fell out of my mouth. One says the guard who always beats me, he was off today, so I didn't get beaten. And one says, I saw a bird flying and that thing inside every human being to search for something hopeful something good is universal so you don't have to have been in a concentration camp and you don't have to have been in those kind of things to understand that need to find something positive that keeps you going for the next day and that's what i mean by you know i try to write with everybody in mind and something you know that that like maury said that it just proves that we're more alike than different well i love your work because you know when you run a company they talk to you about branding and you know what's your vision and your values and i said i want my business to be like christmas spirit or holiday spirit all year long right just that warmth that love that positivity and joy and i heard once and i don't know if this is true but that Somebody told you, almost like a a reviewer or critic said, oh, well, he's like the king of positivity. And you took it as a badge of honor. Yeah, he called me the king of hope, but he was making fun of me. Yeah, he he dismissed me. He said, oh, he's just the king of hope. And I thought like, well, that's a pretty good throne to be sitting on. You know, I'm, I'm okay with that. So it just goes to show you, you know, somebody thinks that being hopeful is a, is a bad thing or a weakness. And I see it as a positivity. And I, even in The Little Liar, which, you know, some of it has to deal with some pretty tough stuff at the beginning, but by the end, and you follow these people for 40 years and you, you see how Nico is yearning to be forgiven, the little boy, and Fanny, the girl who always loved him, is yearning to find him so she can forgive him. And, and even with all the bad stuff that happened in their lives, it ends on a hopeful note. And if somebody wants to make fun of me for that or say, you know, oh, well, you know, 
Pollyanna, you know, well, Pollyanna was a, I liked Pollyanna, you know, that was a good movie when I was a kid. And uh, I think I'd rather live in that world where you at least believe in the positivity and the possibility of a hopeful and happy ending than live in the world that unfortunately many people today seem to live in, which is let's just make it as dark as we can, as angst ridden as we can. And when we get to the end, nobody wins because everybody's bad and everybody's evil. And that's the point, the end. I'm like, wow. Yeah, I, I, I tell you, I watch some shows sometimes with my wife. We, we sit and we watch and we go, you know what? The acting in this is phenomenal. And the scenery and the directing is terrific. And I don't want to watch one more minute of it because it's bringing me down. It's so depressing. These people, there's not one person I want to root for in this whole story. And so as great as it is artistically, it makes me feel like I want to take a shower. And so we stop watching it and we end up turning on, you know, I don't know, some, some it's a wonderful life, you know, you watch that again. Yeah. Make us feel better. Well, I want to thank you for that because as a person who puts myself out there and creates, and I, I talk to a lot of other creators behind the scenes, there's a lot of talk or there has been over the years of toxic positivity and, and kind of dragging people to take all of this into account. And I know that toxic positivity is something else, but it kind of brings people to a place of like, okay, well now I can't be that positive or that hopeful, but I'm so glad that you share that story um, that you just did because it really allows people to be themselves. And I think there are some people out there that just need to hold up that light of hope and love and compassion and welcome other people towards it. Yeah. Well, don't be ashamed of it and don't feel like, you know, there's something cooler about being negative and, and being, you know, dark. There's enough darkness in the world, uh, really. You know, all you got to do is look around. There's enough darkness in the real world that when it comes to creating something new, be it a novel, be it a podcast, whatever, why add to the darkness, you know, uh, add to the light. At least that's the way I look at it. I love it. And I think this was a line from your book. I've got like a whole thing of notes here, but was this yours? Piece is a choice made by leaders. So too is a piece of choice made by each individual soul. And the piece of each soul contributes to the piece of the whole. I don't know if you wrote that or if I just wrote that down after like reading your book, but that's where I got to is that all of us can be these peacekeepers within ourselves of, of holding that peace and that hope and that love. And it really does contribute to the whole vibration of the planet. Well, that I can't take credit for that line, but it's really good. And I remember Maury used to love to tell this story, which kind of dovetails on what you just said. He, he, he would tell it to me like a hundred times, but he'd always think he was telling him to me for the first time. He said, did you ever hear the story about the wave in the ocean? And I would go, tell me the story about the wave in the ocean, even though I knew what it was going. He said, oh, there's this wave in the ocean and he's flopping around, he's enjoying life and he's, he's having a great time. And then uh, all of a sudden, another wave comes up to him, all panicked and says, look, look, the shore. And the wave says, what about it? And the wave says, we're going to hit the shore pretty soon. And the wave says, well, what's the matter with that? He says, don't you understand? We hit the shore and we cease to exist. It's all over. You know, it's about to all end. And the other wave says to him, no, you don't understand. You're not a wave. You're part of the ocean. And then he would say, do you get it? Part of the ocean. I say, yeah, I got it. I got it the first time. I got it the 10th time. I got it this time too. <laughs> but he loved that idea that, you know, 
we think that our own so unique and 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 we only get this period of time and then that's it it's all over but if you look at yourself as part of humanity you know part of that ocean part of the human experience then you're here for a period of time someone's here for a period of time before you someone's here after you if you can affect the ocean and touch the ocean you know in some way you touch one person that's what the five people you meet in heaven was about touch one person touch the world and so I think if you can create something that's positive and someone gets feels better about you know themselves for that one day because of what you did and they treat somebody else better as a result of it who leads to something good happening to them look at all the people that you've affected just by doing something positive for the rest of the world and conversely negative as you see in the little liar you know force somebody to lie that lie has consequences to the people in their family, which has consequences to the people that they raise, which has consequences to the rest of the generations. So you can do it either way. You can affect the world by throwing a stone into the into the river and watching the ripples go out in evil, or you can watch the ripples go out in good and you know make your choice. Amazing. For those who don't know, Maury was your professor. You were able to get in touch with him before he passed. And I think there was some sort of like writer strike or something, right? Uh, newspaper strike, yeah. Newspaper strike. So so you had this opening of time where you got to go every Tuesday and sit with your professor and have these conversations. And I'm wondering, because when my dad passed Mitch, I started hearing him from the other side and we weren't actually in, we weren't talking when he was here. I wonder if you still talk to Maury, even though he's on the other side, and if you feel like he talks back. I believe I included this in Tuesdays with Maury, but maybe my favorite moment with Maury and all the time that I spent with him was the last visit that I had with him. And he he wanted me to hold his hand. And he said, uh, I want to ask you a favor. Of course, his voice was very scratchy at this point. He could barely talk. And could barely had any strength in his fingers. I was holding his hand and he said, I want you to come visit me at my grave. And I said, all right, I was going to do that anyhow. And he said, well, not the way other people do it. I don't want you to come get out of the car, leave the car engine running and put some flowers down and get back in the car and drive away. I want you to come when you have some time and want you to bring a blanket and some sandwiches maybe. And I want you to talk to me about your life. And, you know, what's happening in the world, how the Red Sox are doing, you know, that kind of thing. And I said, wait a minute, you want me to come to a cemetery and have a picnic at your tombstone and then talk to the air? And he said, yes, exactly. Just like we're talking now. And I said, well, Maury, it's not going to be like we're talking now, because let's face it, you won't be able to talk back. And he looked at me as if I were being very naive. And he said, well, Mitch, I'll make you a deal. After I'm dead, you talk I'll listen. I always felt that that was the quintessential message of Tuesdays with Maury. And really all the books that I've written about that have had to do with life and death. Because if you spend your time on this earth, making memories with people, giving of yourself to people, sharing your, yourself, your voice with people, then when they're dead, they're not really gone. And when you're dead, you're not really gone. They can talk to you. Maybe they're blessed like you are to be able to really talk. Or maybe it's just when you think of them, their voice comes from within you. Because I always liken it, Julie, to a penny in the piggy bank. When you take a penny, you put it in a piggy bank, it's gone, right, forever. You think like, well, okay, I'll never see that again. It's gone for, it's locked away. It's gone. But if you take the piggy bank and you shake it, there it is, right? 
And it's the same way with people who are gone. Their voices are inside our hearts and you shake your heart up with the memory of them, there they are. So whether you're hearing them for real coming from the other side or those who might not have antenna like that, hear them in the form of the memories that they made while they were here, you still hear them. So I hear Maury all the time. I hear him even while I'm talking to you. I know what he would say about, oh, tell the story about the ocean. You know, <laughs> I love that one. You know? And so, yeah, all my loved ones are in my head forever and in my heart. And I, you know, while sometimes I dream about them and, and have some conversations that I often wonder, was that, was that them? really coming to visit me or was that just my imagination running? It doesn't really make a difference in the end because the spirit is the same. It's them. It's, it's, it's either them in memory or it's them where they are now, but, but it, it's them and it's their voice. And I, I hear them all the time. And that's my message in starting this podcast is I think it's so much more easy for us to hear from our loved ones on the other side than we ever realized. And I loved how you described it, especially with the piggy bank, because that's exactly it. You get that memory and then that rush of them and everything that they would say, they really are saying from the other side comes rushing back. So beautiful. When it comes to the book, in addition to looking at the lies that we tell ourselves and tell others, there's really this huge element of forgiveness. And I don't think that we often take time to really consider how much we need to forgive ourselves. But as you look at Nico, as you look at Fanny, as you look at uh, the brother, really Fanny excluded, the brothers didn't forgive themselves. They didn't forgive each other or one to Nico. Yeah. Well, forgiveness is a huge theme of this book. And again, a theme that I spent a lot of time talking to Maury about. I always say that my all my books since Tuesdays with Maury have a slice of Tuesdays with Maury in them. And in this case, in the, the Little Liar, it, the slice is forgiveness. And Maury was very adamant with me about saying, you need to forgive everybody, everything in your life. Because when you get to where I am, and, and you will, you're not going to care who was right or wrong. You're not going to care who was, you know, justified or in doing what they did. You just want to be at peace with your loved ones. And you need to let all that stuff go. Because if you think by being righteous and not forgiving somebody, you're helping yourself, you're not. It's a little bit like what they say about, you know, anger. It's like drinking poison, expecting the other person to die. You know, you, it doesn't work like that. It's a dual blade. So you're suffering by not forgiving the same way as they're suffering by not being forgiven. And in The Little Liar, Nico spends his whole life trying to be forgiven for this lie that he wasn't, he didn't do on purpose. It wasn't his fault, but he still feels responsible for the things that happened as a result. So he spends his whole life trying to be forgiven. Fanny, who always loved him, spends her whole life trying to find him again because he changes his name and he changes his identity and he becomes these different people all the time. He becomes a pathological liar. And she can't find him because she every time she gets a lead, he's changed his name. But her whole goal is to just forgive him because the need to forgive somebody is as strong as the need to be forgiven. And his brother Sebastian doesn't forgive him because he blames him for the suffering that he had to go through at the concentration camps. He thinks he was working with the Nazis for real. And so you have these three people who are on all different sides of the forgiveness chain until they all come together at the end. I don't want to ruin the book for everybody, but they come together and have to decide, are they going to forgive or who, you know, who's going to accept what from whom? And that is very much a big part of how we live our lives too. We have to decide 
you know, maybe we've been hurt, maybe we've been wounded, but are you going to add to that wound by being hard hearted and not forgive somebody? And what will that do to them? And will you be inflicting your own form of harm on someone by not being open enough or kind enough to forgive them, even if they've harmed you terribly? And I do think that forgiveness is divine. I believe in that expression. And uh, I, it's a huge part of The Little Liar, and it's a huge part of the messaging that I try to get across in everything I write. It's amazing. For those who are listening, who maybe have a hard time identifying with themselves and just, well, okay, you guys are talking about lies that we tell ourselves, but how do I know what I'm telling myself is a lie or the truth? Where would you have them start with that? Hmm. Well, I'd say if you don't, you yourself don't know if you're telling a lie, you need to really examine how you're living because uh, you're not enough in touch what's going on or how you're affecting people to know the difference between truth and lying. I, I think even more than right and wrong, which sometimes is tough to discern, you know, certain circumstances, well, but if I do the right thing, people are going to be hurt. If I do the wrong thing, they won't. It makes it kind of murky. But lying and truth, that's pretty easy to understand. Again, if you're lying because you don't want to hurt someone's feelings, that gets into that gray area of, you know, are these pants to make me look fat kind of thing. And there's a point at which it's nicer to just say, of course they don't, even if maybe they do, because what are you accomplishing by saying they do? But then there's a point at which someone says, you know, do you think, you know, my boyfriend, this new boyfriend, what do you think? You know, is he's good for me, right? And you don't want to hurt someone's feelings. And yet you can see this person's not good for the person and they're going to harm them or treat them badly then that may be a time where you got to step up and say, yeah, this is not going to be fun, but you need to hear this. I operate an orphanage in Haiti and uh, I'm there every month and we have 65 plus kids and we have a dozen kids up here in college and, you know, and, and, and I consider them my, my kids, you know, and I'll tell you, having to decide what to tell them and what not to tell them about the world uh, on the outside, about what coming to America is going to mean, about are they ready or not, or what they're going to see is very tough. Uh, but I've always found that I say to them, I'm going to tell this to you because I want you to always believe that I'm going to be honest with you. And you're probably not going to like what I'm going to tell you, but you'll walk away from it knowing that Mr. Mitch, that's what they call me, Mr. Mitch tells us the truth. And that's more important than if they like me at that moment or if their feelings are hurt at that moment. And so you know, I think to answer your question, you just have to you have to look within yourself, find where you're, what the truth is, be honest with yourself. Because I think the worst kind of lying we do is the kind of lies that we tell ourselves. Those are the easiest ones, you know, when we say, I, I, I haven't done anything wrong and I'm doing my job really well. And all these people who are criticizing me don't have, don't have you know, they're just jealous of me or whatever. Yeah, that's hard. If that's what you mean, I think you just have to go outside yourself and say, all right, let me imagine that I'm them. You know, let me switch names and switch personalities. And if I really looked at what I was doing, could it be construed as, oh, I guess they're right now. You know, I, I remember earlier in my career, I was so kind of focused wherever I went, I was always writing stuff down or whatever, that I would walk past people who, you know, I worked with because I was, I, I was just focused on some idea or whatever, or writing it down. And I started to hear that people would say, oh, he's aloof, you know, he's, he's not, he's just aloof. He doesn't care about anybody. And I knew in my heart that wasn't true. I, I don't like being aloof and I certainly did not care about anybody. I didn't even realize that I was 
doing this that I was like walking, you know, with almost my eyes, you know, someone might have said hello and I didn't even hear them. But I had to say, well, okay, where would they be getting that from? And I heard somebody give an example, like, you know, I said hello to him, he didn't say hi to me. Or, or someone said that they sat next to me on a plane and that I was working the whole time on the plane. And so I didn't even look up to say hi or something like that, even though I didn't know them. And I thought, okay, yeah, you know, if I were them, and I were looking at this guy here, that would probably be my conclusion too. So I became aware of it. And as becoming aware of it, I kind of overcompensated. Like I say hello to everybody, you know, now, you know, but I learned from it, you know, and, and I had to admit that, that they were right and I was wrong. And if you can do that, if you can even say that sentence, they're right and I'm wrong, you're already three quarters of the way there to telling the truth, because that's a hard sentence for a lot of people to say. Amazing. Mitch, your work is just so beautiful. The Little Liar, we're going to put in the show notes everywhere that people can find it. Where else would you like people to find you and your work with your orphanage? Well, anything they want to know about me is pretty easy. It's MitchAlbum.com. And there's an embarrassing amount of things that someone else takes care of for me that are there. But I would rather people learn about our charities. Our orphanage is HaveFaithHaiti.org, HaveFaithHaiti.org. And the work that we do in Detroit, where we have multitude of charities all throughout the city, is SayDetroit.org as well. So, um, yeah, either one of those two things would be great. We'll put both of those in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you so much for the interview today. We appreciate you so much. And thank you for just being an angel on this earth. That's very kind of you. Thank you for having me on your show. Friends, let's end today's episode with a prayer. Dear God, as we stand here at the threshold of a new year, we come to you humble in gratitude and hopeful in our hearts. We ask you to bless this world and every person in it with your endless love and abundance. We call upon your angels to extend their wings over every soul. May they touch every life, bringing healing where there is pain, strength where there is weakness, and infinite abundance in every area of every life. In this time of global reflection and anticipation, we pray earnestly for peace, peace within our own hearts, peace within our homes, peace across every land. Let hope rise and let love prevail, binding us in our shared humanity and interconnectedness. We ask for special care and protection for the children of our world. May they grow in a nurturing environment, shielded from harm and surrounded by care. Their laughter and their dreams are the seeds of a promising future. And we ask that each are blessed with every opportunity to thrive. God, guide us to be creators of our own harmonious world. Help us to become beacons of your energy and spread your love now and always. As we step into this next chapter of our lives, empower us to live in alignment with our soul, find joy in each moment, and embrace the beauty of life's journey. May we each walk in confidence and faith, knowing that with your divine guidance, anything is possible. May our hearts overflow with gratitude and our minds be filled with positive, loving thoughts. 
In this spirit of optimism and renewal, we step boldly into our future, ready to create, love, and thrive. In this we pray, amen. Friends, if you'd like to support this podcast, book a session with me or join my Angel Reiki School, where I'll help you develop all of your unique spiritual gifts and use them to serve. Visit theangelmedium.com or use the link in the show notes to book a discovery call with me personally. Thank you for being here. I love you.